Hello again. Welcome to another episode of World of Wallace and Gromit, the podcast. For today's episode, I thought we could take a look in a bit more detail at the life of the late great Peter Salas, who voiced Wallace from the beginning until his retirement. Although, as we'll see, this was only one part of his long career, primarily in the world of theatre, film and television. Perhaps best known outside the Wallace and Gromit community as Clegg from the television series Last of the Summer Wine, Peter Salas was born in 1921, and given that he only passed away in 2017, had a career that spanned many decades and witnessed huge changes in the world over the course of his life. Peter was born on the 1st of February 1921 in Twickenham, south-west London, but he and his mother and father settled in a semi-detached house in Palmer's Green, North London. From a relatively young age, he was aware that his mother and father weren't particularly happy together, although there were not outbursts or anything like that. But he often preferred to spend time at his good friend Reg Davis's house. Reg was born at the same time as Peter, and they went to school together. As well as playing cards with Reg and his parents, which he really enjoyed, Peter used to put on plays with Reg, which they'd perform in each other's houses. The arts was also a shared interest between Peter and his mother. She used to take him to see West End shows and also the cinema, which really sparked his love of performances. But their favourite activity to do together was listening to the wireless radio. Listening to the first disc jockey Christopher Stone playing dance band gramophone records introduced a young Peter to many great composers like the Gershwins, the Porters and the Berlins, among others, which he thought were all marvellous. Age 11, Peter passed the 11 plus exam and went to Minchenden Grammar School, as it was, in Southgate, North London. He described the school as a fine Queen Anne house at the end of a winding drive, which you accessed through two huge iron gates set in a high brick wall. Behind the old house, there were modern buildings like the classrooms, laboratories, houses and gymnasium, and the school was named after an oak tree that stood about half a mile away of the same name. In fact, this tree was mentioned in the Doomsday Book. It was a mixed school of 400 pupils, who Peter recalls all got along well enough. They liked the staff and were taught well. There was the threat of the cane, but it was only used by the headmaster, and not liberally. He spent five years there, and upon completing his passing out exams, the equivalent of GCSEs nowadays, did reasonably well, but didn't know what he wanted to do next. He thought he might like to be a journalist, so found out there was a class called Sixth Commerce where he could learn shorthand and typing. His father, a bank manager, was a fair man and agreed to support Peter with the fees for this course. However, when he started the course, he found learning shorthand a lot harder than he expected and, with only one typewriter between twelve, spent most of the time daydreaming about girls in his class settling down and raising a family. The headmaster noticed his lack of work and, much to Peter's horror, asked him to leave. He told his bank manager father that he still didn't know what to do. So his father suggested to Peter that if he went into the bank now, he could retire when he was 60 with a pension for life, and it wasn't a bad way of spending his time. Peter didn't think much of it, but didn't know what else he could do, so worked as a junior clerk in a Barclays bank in Bloomsbury. When the war broke out in 1939, he was 18 years old, and still working at the bank, as you were only eligible to be called up to fight at 20. When, in 1940, the Germans swept through northwest France 
and the retreat at Dunkirk took place. That was when Peter decided that he couldn't stay at the bank anymore and joined up. Averse to the idea of pushing a bayonet into someone's stomach, Peter applied for aircrew in the RAF, the Royal Air Force. His words were, if I'm going to be killed, I'd rather be killed sitting down. He thought he probably wouldn't be good enough to be a pilot, but liked the idea of a navigator position, and after some helpful inside knowledge from a friend of a friend, passed the interview. After the interview was the medical, and it was discovered that he had, that he had albumin in his urine, so was likely to pass out at 10,000 feet, and consequently was not accepted any further in his aircrew training. So he applied for Air Force ground crew instead. This involved general medical training and then individuals were recommended to train in different areas. For Peter, he went on to train as a wireless mechanic, which appealed to him a lot as he was into shortwave radio and used to listen to dance bands in America on shortwave receiver before the war. He was first trained to march and walk properly as an airman, which improved his fitness greatly and then was sent to an Edinburgh training college for wireless mechanics before finishing his training in Bolton. Now 21, and whilst he was there, he was asked if he would be interested in becoming an instructor to teach radio theory, as he was very good in his exam papers, but not so much in the practical aspects, and they were in need of teachers. Following a test lecture to see if he was up for it, Peter was sent to Cranwell in Lincolnshire to go on a six-week instructor's course to train and then teach others about radio. There, he met a musician named Mark Robinson, and also future impresario Peter Bridge. Bridge was one of his pupils at Cranwell, and asked him to play the leading man in a production of Noel Coward's Hay Fever that he was putting on for three nights. After thinking about it for a second, he said yes. The excitement of going on stage, remembering lines, making people laugh, and not knocking over any furniture, got him hooked, and Peter decided that if he survived the war, he would become an actor. After hay fever, Peter got involved in play-reading groups in the evenings after his day's teaching, which he enjoyed. There, he met Leslie Sands, who had been a professional actor before the war, and later went on to be part of the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, as well as acting in TV like The Two Ronnies, The Avengers and Zed Cars. Peter and Leslie set up a company together called The Little Theatre in Cranwell, and put on plays together every two or three months with a couple of other ladies, and were also very involved in the music society there. As the war drew to a close, Peter became more serious about his professional acting aspirations and auditioned for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. After four and a quarter years at Cranwell, Peter was signed out by his commanding officer, and looking back, considers himself extremely lucky, and reckons Cranwell was the safest place to be during the war in the UK. He even went so far as to say that he actually enjoyed the war years, if you can say that about a war. Upon starting at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, with one of a few corder scholarships for ex-servicemen, he found that he was much respected for his part in the war effort, despite, in his opinion, his role being very far from heroic. Whilst there, he learnt the skills and techniques needed in the acting profession from a whole range of teachers, who often taught by day and were West End performers in the evening. By the time Peter left the Academy, not only had he learned how to speak properly and do different accents, but he had also acquired an agent, the two reasons he believes his time there was so valuable. He was offered work almost immediately after leaving, and his first professional stage appearance was in 1946 
in the scheming lieutenant in the arts theatre in the West End. The 15 years following this were described by Salas as his best creative achievements. Some of the performances in this time were Awesome Wells' Moby Dick, 1955, at the Duke of York's Theatre, Coward's Look After Lulu in 1959 with Vivian Lee at the Royal Court, and Wells' production of Ionesco's Rhinoceros, 1959, with Laurence Olivier, also at the Royal Court. He also spent two seasons at the Lyric, Hammersmith, with John Gielgud in 1953, and the 59 Theatre Company in 1959. In 1952, Peter made his film debut appearance in the film Child's Play. The film was about some children who had discovered the secret of atomic energy and used it to make popcorn. Peter Salas played the man who drove the van with the popcorn in the back. Whilst the producer was worried that, as a theatre actor, Peter would be exaggerating actions and shouting to be heard, he needn't have worried about that because the real problem was that Peter couldn't actually drive and he was supposed to drive a van. He had had a bike as a child, but no one had thought to check if he could drive when he was being cast and expected him to get in the van and drive off. It was too late to recast by the time they found out, so somehow had to position someone to crouch in the van and work the controls whilst Peter moved the steering wheel. In 1958, he played the lead role in the BBC series Samuel Pepys, which was a role that he was very fond of. Some years after, he was asked to take part in a National Trust evening's entertainment based around Pepys, where he read passages of dialogue in costume with background music of live harpsichord between the music of singers. He's also done his fair share of radio broadcasts, mostly play recordings. One of his favourite ones was a play written by Raymond Briggs, who's probably best known for writing The Snowman. Anyway, this play was called When the Wind Blows, which he acted with Brenda Bruce, and it went on to win the British Press Award for Best Programme. In 1972, Peter got a letter from the BBC, with the first script for Last of the Summer Wine, written by Roy Clark. The producer, Jimmy Gilbert, then called the three main actors, Michael Bates, Bill Owen and Peter Salas, together to talk about the script and their general feelings on it. When thinking about what he was going to wear before the meeting, as his character Clegg, Peter considered that the Yorkshire weather round the Pennines where the series is set could be very variable, so he should dress accordingly. He chose a pair of trousers and waistcoat from an old suit he'd had made for him in the 1950s, the only article of clothing he'd ever had specially made. When worn with a long-sleeved cardigan and a fawn sports jacket over the top, it gave a rather quirky imbalance that he thought would be a good fit for Clegg. After a few funny looks from the others in the meeting, Peter explained that this was his idea for his Clegg costume and not, as they might have been imagining, the only clothes he had to wear. Last of the Summer Wine was a sitcom that ran from 1973 to 2010, totalling 31 series making it the longest-running comedy programme in Britain, and focused on three old men and their childlike antics with no wives, jobs or responsibilities. They enjoyed speculating about fellow townspeople and testing inventions, and there were also several subplots with other characters which took place within the series. Despite mixed reviews over the years, the show remained largely popular, and it was in fact too popular to cancel when the BBC wanted to do so, in favour of a new programme aimed at younger viewers. 
In 2003, the programme won a third of the vote on a Radio Times poll of which programme readers wanted most cancelled, but was subsequently praised, portraying older people in a non-stereotypical, positive and active manner, and for its clever and at times philosophical writing, and being a family-friendly show. Initially, Peter Salas was the only cast member of the programme, as Clark had worked with him before, and wrote the part of Norman Clegg specially for him. Peter played this role right up until the final episode in 2010, making him the only actor to appear in all 295 episodes. Now, for the part I'm sure you're all eager to hear about, Peter Salas and Wallace and Gromit. In 1983, Peter's agent phoned him up to say that there was a young man, Nick Park, at the National Film and Television School, who would like him to record a voice for his animation. Peter agreed to speak to him. Later, Peter recounted that the conversation went something like, Hello? Hello? Then Nick said he had the script. It's a cartoon film that I'm making. It's just one character who actually speaks in the cartoon. Would you come in and do it for me at the film school? Peter replied, Well, yes, but supposing you don't like me? Oh, no, no, there'll be no difficulty there, I'm sure. So Peter said, Well, let's play it safe. Have you got a script? Nick did. Well, send it to me, and I'll do my best. I'll record what I think is an appropriate voice, and see how we go from there. So Peter recorded chunks of the script, and sent it back to Nick, who listened and said, yes, please. When meeting Nick, Peter took an instant liking to him. He was young, only 23, came from Preston, and had a lot of charm, as well as being just a nice chap. What surprised Peter most, when they were actually recording the voice, was that Nick never once commented on the actual noise that Peter was making. Nick would ask lines to be a bit slower or a bit faster, but never, this voice isn't right. At the end of the session, they shook hands and that was that. Six years later, the phone rang and a voice said, Hello, it's me, Nick Park. Remember me? I've finished it. And Peter thought, six years, wow, but said, oh, that's great. Nick then said, I'd like you to come to the studio, and named a real studio in Soho, not the school studio, to record some more oohs and ahs. It was there that Peter also got a chance to see the actual figures of Wallace and Gromit, and was struck by both of them straight away. Almost immediately after the Oscar ceremony, where a grand day out narrowly lost to creature comforts, Peter was asked to provide the voice for a second film, The Wrong Trousers. Peter later remarked that this was his favourite film, because it was the greatest fun to do. When Peter saw some early shots of the train chase sequence, he wasn't convinced that it was going to work. How could they lay the track in front of the train like that and finally catch up with the penguin? On voicing his concerns to Nick, Nick replied, Trust me, Peter. On seeing the film at its premiere in Leicester Square, when it got to the end of that scene, the audience erupted, clapping and cheering. Nick leant forward in his seat and turned to Peter, and they waved at each other. The words, trust me Peter, have been true ever since. Peter went on to voice Wallace for the subsequent two shorts, one feature film, and numerous special short clips, and when The Curse of the Were-Rabbit was nominated for an Oscar, Nick Park invited Peter along as his guest, a gesture which really meant a lot to Peter. Aside from his acting career, Peter married the actress Elaine Usher at St John's Wood Church in London, on 9th of February 1957, and they have a son, Crispian, 
1959. Unfortunately, the relationship was a rocky one, and the couple divorced in 1965, although they continued to live together until 1999. Peter also suffered from a gradual worsening of vision called macular degeneration and was a patron of the Macular Society, who he also recorded appeals for. Ardman also produced a short animated film for the Society, following Peter's diagnosis, which I think is rather lovely. In 2007, he was awarded an OBE for services to drama in the Queen's Birthday Honours, and retired in 2010 because of ill health related to macular degeneration. A man named Ben Whitehead now voices Wallace. Peter died on the 2nd of June 2017 at the grand old age of 96 and is buried next to fellow Last of the Summer Wine actor Bill Owen in the churchyard of St John's Parish Church, Upperthong, near the town of Holmfirth in Yorkshire, the home of the Last of the Summer Wine. Peter was never one of the huge names in the theatre world, but specialised in making marginal characters more central in an unassuming way, and had a way of making quietness compelling. He worked with so many big names in hundreds of productions, shows and films, yet was self-effacing and meek, although with a sly smirk and a beady eye that hinted at mischief. Whilst we'll never have the chance to see Peter live on stage now, we are lucky enough that he can live on through all the broadcasts and films that he was part of during his long life, and especially through the voice of R. Wallace. What do you think of that then, Gromit? This week, the review is of the 2007 Wallace and Gromit Annual. In the book, we have a whole load of activities, like word searches, crosswords, colouring in, a maze, quizzes, sheet pom-pom making, a little board game, and pictures to draw. There are also three comic strips telling a different story in the lives of Wallace and Gromit, and a few special sections like a personality test, which Wallace and Gromit character do you most resemble? At the start of the book, we get to see a few snapshots of different moments in Wallace and Gromit's lives, with very Wallace-esque captions, and a little tour of 62 West Wallaby Street, again through pictures, some of which are not featured in any of the films. There are a few other sections, like Wendelin's window on the wonderful world of wool, but my favourite section is probably 101 uses for a nice bit of Wensydale. Wallace has decided to start with just 10, though. Things like prop for a table leg, clock weight, even toothpaste, although the page does come with a please do not try this at home warning, a fun book. Uh, all's well that ends well, that's what I say. Well, I hope you've enjoyed hearing about a few of the things on the long list of Peter Salas's work and achievements. I think we can all agree that he was an understated example of quality acting talent with a fascinating career. See you next week. Uh, from me, uh, from Gromit, uh, from Arj. Au revoir, chucks. <laughs>